thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us and lifting us and uh, setting us before God's word uh, with our hearts open and ready. We're in the series that I've called Major Truth from the Minor Prophets, and uh, you can see the prophets on the banners, uh, and you can also see some of the topics, some of the truths that we're going to be looking at. Uh, I've read a bunch of books, probably 10 books on the Minor Prophets, and and it's interesting because um, they start with often their favorite one, and they go in the order of the things they want to lift up the most. And I struggled with it, and I thought, you know, let's just go through them in the order that they're in the Bible. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing. So we're in Hosea uh, this weekend, uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, faithfulness. Um, you may have noticed that preachers are sometimes known to do dramatic things to stir up their congregation. Uh, there are several stories that I've read across the country where preachers uh, decided to costume and dress as a homeless person and visit their own congregation and uh, just see what would happen or sit out front of their church and see how they might be treated, what would happen. Actually, what's amazing is the many, many of those, it's a remarkable thing. I saw one pastor testifying. He said, I was just brought to tears by how kind you are because of the way you treated me. And they have video of people bringing food and bringing coffee and a woman with two little children saying, why don't you come in? You're very welcome. It was just beautiful. Uh, you might have heard about a, a story that also went around about a new pastor introduced to his mega church of 10,000. No one knew who was going to be introduced. And he sat in the back dressed as a homeless person and he was treated rudely and he was treated badly with disdain and disrespect. Uh, and then when he was called to the platform, boy, did they hear. And, uh, and then he preached on Matthew 25. The only problem is that never happened. It really never happened. It was all a fake. And it went all over. It went all around. And it was a lie. It was a lie that maligned and slandered the body of Christ. And so uh, preachers will do some things. Um, and they'll go to some great extremes. You might re recall that John Adams once stood on this stage. <laughs> Uh, and so did uh, Ben Franklin, and so did Thomas Jefferson, and the Apostle Paul, and John the Baptizer. At different times, we've had some interesting visitors. But um, I would say none of that holds a candle to some of the Old Testament prophets who did really, really strange things. And were called to really, really strange things. I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. I don't know if you knew this, I, I hadn't remembered it, that Isaiah walked around stripped naked and barefoot like a prisoner of war for three years. I'm not going to do that. I just want to reassure you. I mean, these days you would get arrested for some of the things that the prophets did. And, you, and the board would have you called in right away. Um, God told Jeremiah to carry an ox yoke on his shoulders, and he did uh, I, I don't know for how long, but uh, one was taken away and he got another one. And he was, but he was giving, uh, these were to bring an example. And, and Isaiah was trying to say, you're going to be prisoners of war. It's going to be really, really bad because God, his judgment is coming. 
And, and Jeremiah, very similarly, you are going to be under the yoke of bondage in Babylon. And if you hear a prophet say anything different, it's a false prophet. That's what's going to, and that is what happened. Ezekiel acted like a little boy. And he was told to, to play war with sticks and mud and a, and a, uh, a clay pallet. And he, uh, he made war for 390 days laying out on the ground. 390 days. Can you imagine coming by and saying, where's the preacher? He's out in the sandbox. What's he doing? He's ma making siege ramps and things like that. Uh, I don't know if that pastor would be around for very long. So dramatic sermon illustrations are, are not new, but they have a purpose. They awaken us to the voice of God in a dramatic way. And that's what we find in a number of places in the prophets. Well, tonight we're on Hosea. And Hosea was called to bring, I think, the most profoundly painful sermon illustration that I know of. There, there could be some others that are close. But we're in Hosea chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 2 through 11, and we'll get the beginning picture of what went on with Hosea and what God called him to do. Let's give our attention to the word of God. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Debliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and they will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for all of your word. And I thank you for 
portions of your word that, that really are challenging, that are very, very hard to understand because often that's, that's where we gain the most. And so, Lord, speak to us in this day, in this time, and show us what you want us to get. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I'm going to give you the story in a nutshell. Because <laughs> that's really, it's a 14-chapter book, but most of it is, a lot of it is poetry. Um, and it's the heart of God at, at being expressed. But Hosea was instructed by God to marry a woman who would betray him repeatedly. Now, I've known some great sermons that were preached out of the pain of life. Uh, but this kind of takes the cake in, in my thoughts. Uh, I, I've known people that have preached out of very difficult times. They, they've gone through cancer. They've gone through the death of a spouse or a loved one. Gone through very, very hard times. And they preached out of that. And it can be very, very powerful. But this is just a whole different thing going on. God knew uh, that she would not be faithful in the marriage. And yet he, uh, God told uh, Hosea to marry Gomer. Um, and she bore these three children, and it's never at all clear if the last two were even fathered by him. His, life, uh, his wife left him for another man and, and was with another man and really enslaved by another man. And so in utter humiliation, Hosea had to buy back his own wife, paying the price of a slave. And I know I can't help but ask, why did God do that? And, and the thing we don't want to miss, no matter how we interpret it, is that God was painting a picture in Hosea's family life of how painful the unfaithfulness of Israel was to his heart. It wasn't just why well, you kind of messed up again or, or, or you wandered away. But also, and don't miss this, he was painting a magnificent picture of God's amazing love for his people. It's so very powerful. So let's back up just a little bit. Last week, if you, if you didn't uh, hear the message, go back and listen to it online because it sets the stage for this whole part of history. But the kingdom had divided uh, in 930 BC, and there were 10 of the 12 tribes in the north, uh, and they began to be called Israel. And then there were two tribes in the south that were called Judah. Um, and it also talks in scripture about Israelites, and that's all of them, but Israel is the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah's in the south. And the two kingdom plan began to fail almost immediately. There was violence between the kingdoms, and uh, God raised up prophets to speak all during this time, and that's what we're looking at, the, the words of the prophets, the words of God through the prophets. And these weren't just a collection of sermons. This was the Lord speaking into these times. And Hosea, he prophesied to the northern uh, kingdom of Israel uh, in the middle of the 8th century B.C. It's interesting, his name kind of sounds familiar because it means salvation, it's very similar to Yahshua or Joshua and Hosea. And he really was a beacon of hope, calling Israel to repent and return to God. But boy, did it come painfully. Um, the kingdom had experienced peace and economic prosperity. Um, 
and we know that they hadn't had any uh, foreign invasion in more than a generation. And we know that if there hasn't been a foreign invasion in a period of time, you just kind of start taking things for granted. Uh, and, and I know in all of my life, there has not been a foreign invasion. There have been some scary times and things. 9-11 just sort of was a shocker because of, of what happened uh, there. But nations tend to grow weak when they have not known an enemy threat on their, on their ground, on their land. The land was prosperous. It was, it was doing very well and became wealthy. There were luxuries that uh, they hadn't seen in a very long time, and building activity was flourishing. Uh, there was great pride in that northern kingdom. We're the thing. We are the, we're the ones. But prosperity rarely draws people close to God. It's just a fact. It's a little bit scary when, you know, I, I love for things to be prosperous, uh, but those are the times when we tend to drift from God and we don't see people uh, drawing near to him. We don't see people in church. We don't see people uh, exercising their faith. And the moral uh, conditions and the social conditions were degrading during that time. Uh, even though there was great wealth, there was extreme poverty that was going on uh, in, right there side by side. And that was because people had turned their heart away from the compassion of God. Because God speaks so many times. The answer is, is what God does in our hearts to touch people and lift people up. Dishonest gain and corruption uh, became common and, and the wealthy were oppressing the widows and the orphans. And there was no justice for that at all in the courts. And so it, it was a terrible time. And God began to uh, announce this judgment. God warned the northern kingdom, that defeat and captivity was coming and, there, and it was not going to be changed. Um, the people in the northern kingdom had turned their back toward God. And you see there the golden calf, they began to, to practice, um, we call it Baal worship often. It's actually pronounced Baal. Why don't you say that with me? Baal. But it's Baal or Baal worship. And uh, they began to worship uh, the golden calf, and prostitution was uh, introduced into the worship life in ancient Israel. You know, this was a horrible thing that was going on. And we suddenly realized that those who had been birthed and they'd seen, we were just singing about the mighty things that, that had gone on to bring about this nation, and yet they had gone so far away from, from the, uh, the miraculous founding of the nation. Well, God warned this northern kingdom that defeat and captivity was coming. Uh, and he foretold also, and we don't want to miss this, that, that healing and regathering of the nation was going to come as well. And God used the marriage of Hosea and Gomer to convey this message. Uh, in verse 2, uh, he, he says, go and take yourself an adulterous wife. Now, we don't know. It, that she had already been adulterous. She had not been married before, uh, but it, it could have been that her character was known. Many assumed that that was not the case. And, uh, and then to have and to take to yourself children of unfaithfulness, because then you will understand and you'll be able to communicate uh, that the land is guilty of the vilest of adultery. So Hosea, whose name is Salvation, was told to marry an adulterous woman and raise these three children. 
Now, one of the big questions that interpreters deal with is, is this symbolic or is this literal? It, could this be an allegory? Why would God tell someone to, to essentially enter into a sinful relationship and such a painful relationship? And the problem is it's not presented as allegory or as a story. It's a straightforward narrative. And there's no way you can get to that without just kind of twisting the sense of the whole book. The book in every way, it describes an actual marriage of Hosea. And it's interesting too, because I'm a, I kind of always want to see what does the name mean? And the name Gomer actually means completion. Now, when I see Gomer, I can only think of Gomer Pyle, and it doesn't seem like a lady's name to me, um, but it actually meant completion, a perfect match. And it occurred to me that if this was not the case, then it would all be just a charade. You could tell any preacher or any, any prophet, just say, I want you to go and find the worst prostitute you can find and marry her. And live with her, and then you'll under, and then in just sort of pity, in pitifulness, and then raise children with her. That's not the same at all as what God's heart is for His bride, which is His people, and which is ultimately the church. So I believe that this is an actual, this is the actual marriage of a Hosea because it's it's presented that way. And, and she was his completion. Um, some interpreters suggest that Gomer was just a very, very beautiful bride that Hosea was madly in love with. Might have been the girl that he said, I'd love to marry her. And God, God knew. And he said, okay, go ahead and marry her. Now in the proclamation in chapter two, he says, go and marry an adulterous woman. Did he know in advance? Was that a warning? Well, we don't really know. It may have been a warning. Well, go ahead, but I'm telling you, it, it's not going to be a good thing. Her character is not good. In, in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, we see a cycle, um, and we see it in a number of the different prophets, a cycle of repentance and redemption and restoration, and then, uh, and then sin again, and then repentance and redemption and restoration. It's, but here it's not abstract at all. Hosea was living this cycle in the most personal and painful of ways. His wife was unfaithful. He loved her so much that he took her again. Again, she was unfaithful. So he pursued her again. The children who are born are symbolic. The name of the son is Jezreel. And Jezreel is a valley where there had been a lot of bloodshed. I will punish the house of Yehu for the blood of Jezreel. Uh, and King Yehu had reached beyond uh, his inst instruction and assassinated the king of Judah and 42 of his relatives. And that's probably what this refers to. This is grievous to the Lord when we reach beyond. And, and, I mean, it's horrible. Gomer conceived again. And the statement is vague enough that it implies that they didn't really know if Hosea was the father of this child. Uh, the child is named Lo Rahuma Rahama, and it means no mercy. Um, and he says, I will, have, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, but no mercy on you. There's no mercy. I mean, you know, that's not a good thing to hear from God. The third child is a son, Lo Ami, and means not my people. 
You are not my people. I am not your God. Did you hear that when I was reading the scripture? Wow. In the singular form means not my child. It's a way of saying illegitimate, not my child. You have made yourselves an illegitimate people. And yet, uh, I hope you heard at the end in verses 10 and 11, the promise of restoration. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. This is not the end. God is not done with his people. Someone say hallelujah. <laughs> Which cannot be measured or counted. The people of Israel will be many and numerous. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, which is right there, you will be called sons of the living God. And the people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the, out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, let me just tell you, we've seen a lot of history since then. And I'll tell you when that happened, it was in 1948. It was a long, long time before the people of Israel were reunited and, and chose their leader for themselves. But we see a stunning picture of God's unrelenting love. It's so painful and yet it's, it's so powerfully touching. Chapter two, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, and he wins that righteousness, and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see it again in chapter three. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved now by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. So I bought for her, 15, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of, and a letek of barley. That was the price of a slave in the book of Exodus. I bought her for the price of a slave. God's redeeming work. God's redeeming love would finally triumph. And so after dealing with them to, to bring them back, God would recognize them again as his people. So very, very powerful. The major truth, and, and there's a major truth every week, there's probably some, a number of truths, but the major truth I want us to be sure and get is this, that God is faithful and we could just leave it at that. Just say, why don't we say that? God is faithful. Say it strongly. God is faithful. That God is faithful and will go to extraordinary lengths to win back the affection of his people, even when they are unfaithful. You know, every once in a while you'll talk to someone, I know I do, and they'll say, I think the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. I say, why? Well, because the God of the Old Testament, he's so mean, you know, he's just so mean and he doesn't let you do things and he's so judgmental and he has these strong things. Well, the book of Hosea eliminates that argument completely. Well, Hosea reminds us of the story 
that we looked at in the student message, the lost son, amazing heart of God, uh, spoken through Jesus. The father that never stopped looking, never stopped seeking, never stopped watching. It's just so amazing, isn't it? No, I won't quit. You ought to go in. He's never coming. No, I will keep watching. I will keep waiting. You've been out here a long time. Why don't you come? No, I am watching. I am waiting because when my child comes over the hill, I'm running to greet that child. And that is God. Old Testament and New Testament. That's the heart of God. Finally, the son comes uh, to the realization, I'd be better off back with dad. And, and, and the hope was that, uh, I think the hope for all of us is, is for that person to come to their senses. We pray a lot for prodigals as part of our ministry uh, here at Faith Fellowship. You know, it's very powerful that Hosea describes redemption as a romance initiated by God. In Isaiah 65, he says it this way, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. Today we call that stalking. <laughs> God loves you so much, he'll stalk you. Praise God. How many of you are glad for that? Because <laughs> you've been stalked. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you were bought with a price. You can call that a bride price or you can call that a ransom. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, came to find us and to buy us. To buy us out of sin and death. To buy, purchase us back. I was studying this and it occurred to me that if you are a believer... If, if you would say, I'm a believer, be careful with that, you know, uh, because what you're saying is the Lord Jesus bought me for himself. That's what you're saying. I'm, I believe that. The Lord Jesus bought me, paid a price, and I am his possession, never again to be on sale at any slave market. I'm not going back on sale anywhere. I'm not for sale. You should just say that. I'm not for sale. I belong to Jesus. He gave his own blood as the ransom price to set me free. That's what we mean when we say, I'm a believer. I have received the forgiveness for my sins. And the adulterous lifestyle is over. We might say, well, I've never, well, any of our idolatry, that's exactly, that's how God views it. I was bought with a price, so I will glorify God in my body, in my spirit, in every way. And I choose to separate myself from the sinful ways of my past. You know, I was reading something online this week, and it, it said, you know, you, the most important thing is to be a Christian. And, and here, uh, you should just pray a prayer and say, God, uh, there's been some sin in my life. And so I want you... And, it, 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 you know, it had the elements that we're familiar with. But there was something that just caught, just kind of caught me. There's been some sin in my life. That's kind of like my clothes have been a little dirty. No. 
I was caught in the abject, horrible place of sin away from him and he reached in and he lifted me and saved me. That is the gospel. It's not just, well, I messed up a little bit here and there. And the foundational truth that we're gonna hear again and again in the prophets is this, that he is faithful. Let's just say that together. He is faithful. And I, I'm really glad that I, I just thought, well, which one should we do first? Because a lot of them say, let's do injustice because injustice is a big deal. Or let's do corruption because we're really worried about corruption. Or let's do prejudice. You know, There are lots of things that we are going to talk about. And I thought, no, I think this is where we need to start. Because before anything else, he calls us to return to him, to repent and be faithful. And, and, and we, none of the rest makes any difference unless we know how much he loves us. None of it makes any difference until we understand how much he did, how much he's given, how much he has pursued us. And so I think it's a really good first study <laughs> in the series. So before we get to all those discussions uh, of all those things, inequality and fairness and all those kinds of things, we need to fundamentally know that we've turned back to God. You know, when you turn back to God, it's just so many of the other things come into place. They just fall into place. We need to set aside whatever our idolatry might be, whatever it is. It also, you know, a lot of this series for me is that the realization that God is calling for something much bigger from us as a nation. I really believe in the uniqueness of the United States of America. I know there are people who don't. I really believe that there's a shining light called liberty. I really believe that there is an idea that was uh, among the founders and the signers, and I spoke about that some last week, that is so very powerful. Um, but fundamentally, uh, you know, we hear a lot about what, what America needs. And I think more than anything, America needs repentance and revival. And, and with that, so much of it will come into place. We, and I think we desperately need a move of God. We need to be praying desperately for a move of God in our nation. And that means in our church and in our families because we need to hear the heart of God and, we, and then we need to move toward him. Will you pray with me? <laughs> Father, I, I'm just still kind of stunned that you asked these two people to do this. You asked Hosea and that he did it. He, he was obedient and he lived out a message that so vividly showed your love and your redemptive grace far beyond anything that's within us. And God, I pray that we at the most fundamental levels could respond to that in our hearts, in our families, in our lives, in our community to be the spark that makes a difference, God. Stir us toward revival move us toward your heart. Move us into a compassion that reaches in, in ways that no one ever would have dreamed. 
God, we thank you that you have reached to touch us. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're really quiet right now. <laughs> we, uh, we hope you'll stay around a little while. That's always our thought at the end of our service. And visit a little bit, talk a little bit. And uh, if you are here for the first time, I don't know if there's any first-timers here. I'd love to meet you, and I'll be over at this table to your left. Um, our tithes and offerings are done either online or out there in the, uh, in the lobby, and we appreciate that so very, very much. Um, please be in prayer this week for this window in which so much happens. A lot of fun happens. I always like to say um, it's fun and games, but it is not all fun and games. The gospel is going to be preached, and lives are going to be changed, and the spirit is going to move. So let's stand as we get ready to go. Send us forth, Father, that we might carry your truth, your compassion, your heart everywhere we go. That when we begin to think about putting our hand up uh, against someone in the name of religion or in the name of anything else, that we might instead reach to invite and draw people to you. And we thank you for that, God, in all that we do. Go with us in Jesus' name, amen.